Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 68 of The Julia LaRoche Show. I am so pleased to bring to you this conversation with Ray Dalio, legendary investor and founder of Bridgewater Associates, which he has grown into the world's largest hedge fund firm that he started out of his two-bedroom apartment 47 years ago. Ray is now a mentor to Bridgewater, and he also serves on the board. He is also a New York Times number one best-selling author of multiple books, including Principles, Life and Work, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, and Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises. In this episode, we discussed where we are in the changing world order and the cracks that are starting to appear in the US and if anything can be done to prevent it. We also talked about what Ray sees as the biggest risk right now. Um, we got his take on the rising tensions between the US and China. We also got Ray's take on investing, the outlook for the US dollar and his updated thoughts on Bitcoin and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ray. I learned a lot and I think you will too. And if you're listening to the show, please be sure to leave a rating and a review so I can continue uh, to make this happen. So thank you so much for your support. And I hope you enjoy this episode with Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, also the author, I should note, the number one New York Times bestselling author of multiple books, including Principles, and one of your newest ones, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. Ray, it is so great to see you, and it is so great to have you on the show. Welcome. And vice versa. I'm so happy to be here. Well, Ray, the last time we spoke was back in 2020, and I feel like a lot has changed. And of course, reading your book, The Changing World Order, you can see how prophetic a lot of the content that you put in there is. So I was kind of hoping we could start with the big picture, the global macro view for you today. Yeah, it's like watching the same movie happen over and over again when you read histories. So uh, there... <clears throat> I learned in my life that many of the things that surprised me happened, didn't happen in my lifetime, but they happened many times before. And there were three big things that are taking place, big forces that are happening in our lifetimes that happened many times before. Um, and they are the creation of an enormous amount of debt and the printing of money to um, service those debts. And so the economic consequences, inflation and what it means for growth and type money and all of that. The second is um, the levels of internal conflict are the highest since the 1930 to 45 period and other times before. Lots of internal conflict, the emergence of populism of the left and the right, uh, the largest wealth gaps since um, the 1930 uh, to 45 period. And so a lot of internal conflict fighting, populism on the left, populism on the right, that's a threatening to our system. And number three is um, the external conflict, which some people call, you know, the great um, powers conflict, the rising of a great power to challenge an existing great power, uh, and to challenge the world order. You know, the way it works is you, you you usually have a big disagreement, you have a fight, you have a war. 
the winners of the war create the new system, the new order. And that happened in 1945. And then they're a dominant power and they sort of set the rules. And then there's the emergence of the other power and and um, that conflict. Um, and so those three things, each one of them, the last time they happened in this magnitudes was 1930 to 45. And when they come together like that, it's sort of a perfect storm. And so I studied, I needed to study what happened before. And I, because these rises and declines take place on average about 75 years, give or take about 50. I mean, these ups and downs, I needed to go back uh, about 500 years and watch them. And I watched the same thing. Uh, happen uh, over and over again for the same reasons. And I also paid attention to two other big influences. Um, so let's call it the fourth influence is uh, the impact of nature. Uh, droughts, floods, and pandemics have actually killed more people than wars and, um, and toppled more uh, governments and systems so they are a big influence. Uh, so something like climate change and what we're seeing is a disruptive influence. It's a costly and disruptive influence. And then number five is the good one over long periods of time, which is um, the inventiveness and doing uh, things better, um, creating a uh, invention, particularly technologies, which has meant that life expectancies have increased, per capita income has increased, and so on. And so when we look at that, we see those five big forces are driving everything. And um, and so that's that dynamic. Now, we could talk about each one of them, but we also, and, and when we do, but we also have to remember that they affect each other in a mutually reinforcing way. Wow. Uh, that was a fantastic first answer. And just to recap, I heard you talk about the five um, most important drivers, um, just for the folks recapping here, um, the debt money economic uh, dynamic, the internal conflict dynamic, the external conflict dynamic, acts of nature that you mentioned, also human invention and technology development. Um, you know, Ray, when you kind of look at the body of work that you put together in the changing world order, um, publishing it in 2021. And here we are um, in the second quarter of 2023. Are you more worried now than when you put out the book? It's it's tracking the typical cycle. Um, and that's why I really want to draw attention to it. Uh, you know, in, in order to draw attention to it, there's the book, but there's also a free video on YouTube called The Changing World Order and describes it. But it, it lays out the cause effect relationship. So it's like a disease, you know, and there are these stages, cycles, and, and we're in stage five. So um, it continues to track that. And we should get specific about that. What I mean, for example, um, if you want me to delve into them, I, I'll. Oh, yes, please. Okay. Um, okay. Um, in the. In these cycles, there's there are short-term cycles that build up to create a long-term cycle. So, uh, for example, we're used to uh, what's commonly called the business cycle or the short-term debt cycle, in which there's a recession when economic weakness is there's economic weakness and low inflation, and then the central bank provides credit 
and that stimulates activity. And then you have the pickup and the good time in the economy. But then it raises inflation and tightness and so on. And then they create tight money. And then you go through the contraction again and so on. So since 1945, there have been 12 and a half of those cycles. On average, they're about seven years long, give or take about three years. Um, so if you say, okay, where are we in that cycle? We're in the business cycle. We're about halfway through. We're in the part of the cycle where the tightening of monetary policy to fight inflation begins to cause the cracks. And, and that's where we are. Okay. Now those add up to a big cycle because um, debt rises relative to incomes through that because everybody wants the higher up. And so they just keep doing that. And so we have a lot of um, debt assets and debt liabilities. Um, uh, you know, we think of there's there's a debt that you owe, but one man's debt is another man's assets. And so you have to keep interest rates high enough that it compensates for inflation for holding it. Because if you don't, nobody's going to then want to lend and you have a problem. But you have to have interest rates not so high that they crack the economy. And so when you have debt, a lot of debt assets and a lot of debt liabilities, having that balancing act is not easy. And so because we had the imbalance, the central banks of the world had to come in there and be buyers. They had to print money and buy that debt to make a balance at an acceptable interest rate. So we have uh, that problem. That produced inflation, and uh, we have the financial problem. Now, that's connected also to what's happening in the world order, because the United States and China, most importantly, are approaching um, um, a war, the greater risk of war, and also Russia is uh, is in that, that there have been, um, um, you know, supply lines, um, supply chains have been broken and supply lines and so on. And that has worsened the set of circumstances for reasons having to do with geopolitical and so on. So we are in that spot. Now, let me be more specific. What happened in this period um, is that a lot of government debt was sold and it was sold to um, a lot of buyers. So let's when you look at uh, Silicon Valley Bank situation, and it's important to understand that that's just one example of an enormous number of uh, cases in which um, short term borrowing uh, was used to finance the purchase of a lot of government bonds and, be, and beyond bonds beyond that um, mortgage payments uh, and also corporate bonds and so on because money was given away free I mean think about it this way the interest rate um, was the government interest rate was 0.7 percent um, uh, you know low grade credits were about you know, three and a half percent interest rate, but they also had interest only loans. So it meant you only had to, you really didn't have to pay hardly anything to get money. So we have all of that debt that, and now the government bonds have gone down. 
and it's find, funded by short-term debt, which the cost of money has gone up. Now, that's not just banks. That's not just the United States. That's a world phenomenon. It existed in Europe because the central banks there in Europe um, provided money like that. Imagine they created negative interest rates um, for money. So how does somebody make money holding an uh, a bond that has a negative interest rate? The way you do it is you have a more negative short-term interest rate that you borrow to fund it. And so that's what went on and that's what we have. So if you look at, let's say, if you marked to market the the bonds that, at, at existing rates, um, you have a lot of terribly um, financially hurt, negative net worth entities around the world. The world is leverage long. So we have that dynamic going on at the same time as we have the other things that I was referring to. So that's the financial dynamic. Yeah. Um, on that, you're mentioning like cracks starting to appear. Um, and I know you wrote a piece about Silicon Valley banks downfall being the canary in the coal mine. Can we just explore that a bit further? I'd love to hear more on that, like um, your thoughts on where this could head. And also at the same time, your views on um, the interest rate outlook here in the U.S. and some of the implications of like what could break next. Um, so the canary in the coal mine is meant to reflect two things. Uh, first, that the um, it's not just the Silicon Valley Bank. It is a pervasive thing about holding a lot of debt that's gone down in value um, and being leveraged long. So it's a pervasive thing. And also meant to convey that there's a sequence of events that are like dominoes falling. So, for example, those who are hurt financially and have a lot of that debt don't want to buy more of that debt. Yet the government is going to have to sell the debt. In other words, when they run run a deficit, that means they have to sell bonds, and they're um, and all of those who have bought bonds, including foreigners, um, who are increasingly worried about um, even uh, the value of the debt, um, but also uh, sanctions. Sanctions means that you know you freeze the debt. Um, so certain holders of the debt say, "I've got a lot of U.S. dollar denominated debt, and I already have maybe too much." And then do I want to buy more? And so you have um, an imbalance there in terms of selling and buying, which is a risky situation. In addition, there's this sequence of events that takes place, such as um, those who were making loans, uh, banks who now are suffering from this condition, don't want to make as much loans. And so if you look at, let's say, uh, like regional banks, those regional banks make a lot of loans to for uh, residential real estate, excuse me, commercial real estate, although there's a, a problem with residential too. But um, so if you look at um, real estate, commercial real estate, um, there's um, it's, it's vulnerable and they, but they haven't gotten the consequences that are 
yet to come in the form of running out of adequate cash flow and not having the money and then having to sell assets and so on. And so you can see in different parts of the economy, like um, companies um, that were, um, let's say, negative cash flow companies that had uh, a lot of uh, venture capital investors in them, um, not like a number of either tech companies or you know new concept companies that had negative um, cash flow because they would either borrow to finance their gap or they would raise equity to finance their gap. That no longer exists in those cases. So they have to have the markdown of those assets. They haven't marked them down yet. And as they mark them down, that means losses for those who are holding those positions. And it means that right now there's not the same amount of money to lend to it. So those groups. So anyway, I can go on and on, but there's a sequence of events that takes place that by nature reduces the amount of credit creation as a result of that. And um, and that weakens um, the economy, particularly certain parts of the economy. Um, I would say that what the government sector did, the government and the Federal Reserve, is they uh, got a lot more in debt and they printed the money. Um, and now they own these kinds of bonds and they gave more money as a result, transferred more money to the household sector. And so the household sector uh, is in a better shape, uh, but it is shrinking as part of the process. So that's the dynamic um, as we're passing that through. And that's not just the U.S., dynamic, that's a world dynamic, which again is happening at the same time as there's the political internal fighting over our wealth and values that's playing a role, like, and it enters into tax policy. How will you deal with the gap? What will, you know, let's say as we're dealing with the um, debt ceiling, there's two philosophies on the debt ceiling, right? And uh, okay, so there's probably going to be a conflict over those two philosophies for the debt ceiling. Um, so we have political situations. And when we come into the 2024 elections, these things are going to be bigger. So you see a fragmentation. You see people moving from one state to another for these various reasons and so on. And you know that's all happening while we have the same types of conflicts internationally with uh, you know the great powers. So it's like that confluence of these forces. And Ray, you mentioned earlier, and I just pulled up in your book too, you mentioned that we in the internal um, cycle are in stage five. There's six stages, and I'm looking in the book, stage five, when there are very bad financial conditions, which I think you covered nicely, and intense conflict. I want to explore with you um, the latter half of that, the intense conflict, um, what are you paying attention to what is concerning to you as it relates to the conflict internally? Um, now, and very classically, um, there's the emergence of populism of both sides, populism of the right, populism of the left. Populism means um, that they will fight and win at all costs. They're not inclined to compromise. Winning is the only thing that matters. And as a result, 
you have the emergence of this. Um, we saw it with uh, the January 6 events, um, and um, you could see it more. And you have to ask yourself, how will those be resolved? Will they be resolved through compromise? And, you know, democracy requires compromise. Um, but you have really greater populism and greater extremism. And, um, you know, it, and it's concerning because a certain number, certain percentage of the population um, would fight rather than lose. And you're seeing that um, it's not easy to be part of the middle. Uh, you have to pick a side, you know, and pick a side and fight. That's always been classically the case if you look at the French Civil War, the uh, Russian Civil War, they call them Russian Revolution, but Civil War, uh, the Chinese, the Cuban, the, you know, I, I don't know, many of them, um, you have that dynamic take place. So um, um, the working together to resolve issues is not likely to be great and is 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 a big risk. I mean, as someone who studied history, you, I mean, you go back 500 years in the book. Um, why why do you think there is such a divide? And, and I imagine it doesn't surprise you because I know you talked about like how things may have surprised you in the past. But once you studied history, it doesn't surprise you. Why? Yeah, one, sta one stage leads to another stage. So you almost can look at naturally when you're in this stage, your choices are limited and then you go to the next stage. And so um, let's let's start the story in 1945 by way of example. There's the war, and there's and then after the war, um, the winners of the war determine the new system, the new order, um, and we created a new monetary system, and we created a new world order. That's the American world order because the United States accounted for half the world's economy. It owned 80% of the gold, which gold was money. And it was a dominant military power. And so nobody wanted to fight it and it determined the world order and so on. Then you go, you have peace. And then you build prosperity, peace and prosperity, um, because nobody wants to fight and people work together. And they're so distraught of a war, they don't want to enter into that. But now they have peace and prosperity. And then you have the 50s and the 60s. And then you begin, um, and these cycles always happen, um, that um, you get more peace and prosperity, you get more um, um, development of the capital markets and borrowing to because things go up and they do well. And also a reserve currency is something that um, other countries that are uh, you know, I've been beaten up, want to hold, because that's their way of saving. They they build these reserves, which is debt in a country. And so that debt that they're owning, like dollar bonds and so on, they, becomes a, a debt of the United States. It's called the exorbitant privilege. You can uh, borrow in, in that. And you get over-indebted. And also, in a normal capitalist system, uh, wealth um, incomes, um, income gaps and wealth gaps uh, increase. Um, you know, those who do well uh, earn a lot. And, you know, those who don't do as well don't. 
And so you have greater and greater wealth gaps. And then as time progresses, you have more indebtedness um, and you have more um, wealth gaps and so on. And then you start to have uh, economic uh, conflicts. And of course, at the same time, uh, where the country is dominant, um, other countries uh, repair themselves um, and start to grow. So you see Japan in the early years, Japan and Germany uh, coming out of war destruction, uh, healing themselves and becoming competitive in the world markets. And you then, you know, take you through history, then you have the great overspending and you have um, 1971, um, a debt problem because we tied the value of money to gold. And so um, because we had way too much claims on gold than we had gold in 1971, uh, they defaulted. The United States needed to default on its um, obligations to convert these IOUs to gold. And then you have the like the 70s. Uh, but anyway, you have these cycles in which then debt rises and in, and gaps occur and so on. And then you find yourself in the position that we find ourselves. Um, you find ourselves in a position where, you know, the problem is we spend more money than we earn. Um, we are in debt. Um, and we're. We have wealth, large wealth and opportunity gaps and large values gaps. And then there's a lot of fighting of, over those things. And they're not easy to repair at that stage because let's say, what do you do? You want to get financially stronger. Okay, financially stronger means you earn more than you spend. Okay, how is that going to work? Um, okay, are we going to, okay, it's so easy to say earn more. Well, it's not easy to earn more. And then what? Or cut expenses? Like you, you're not going to cut expenses. Um, and then you deal with taxes to try to make, let's say, make the balance. And people don't want to get taxed, um, you know. So there's a fight over um, holding on to wealth and how that works. And then, um, and then you have this polarity, and you say, well, you've got to force. You have to have this problem dealt with in a united way, uh, smart, united way to make the difficult choices, but it it's very easy to say, but you have that fragmentation. So what we need, of course, is, you know, and I'm saying, okay, that's internally. Then you have the external part of it, that and that dynamic where, um, you know, you have a rising power and they believe, you know, that they have rising power and they have rights. And, and then you have less control by the dominant power um, and, you know, they argue about what the world order should be. And so you, you become, you have more conflict. So that dynamic, uh, you know, has happened repeatedly through history. Um, and so, you know, that's, yes, it, it, like this is how it happens. You have an economic problem, you have the big gaps, you have the big fights, internal or external, then you have the re big resets, and then you have the new world order. That's what it looks like. Well, can, can it, can it be avoided? Can, do, I mean, I, I, cause, well, okay. It, when I answer that, oh, let me, let me say, um, it's difficult because you have to do what you need to do 
given your circumstances. So it might be like somebody later in life who has smoked too much, who has, um, you know, I don't know, eaten badly and so on. And they're coming up the set of circumstances and you say, can it be unvoided? So um, there is certainly better and worse things to do. Like the capacity, if we can work well together, okay, if we can work well together in a united and calm way to do the smart things, we can make this go all right. It would be fine. Um, not, you know, but because you have to deal with, for example, financially, um, how much debt restructuring takes place, how much debt monetization, how do you engineer that correctly? Um, how do you stop fighting each with each other so that you can work together? Like, you know, if I was president of the United States, what I would do is I'd have a bipartisan cabinet and I would take um, moderately um, left and moderately right um, representatives of both parties and who are smart. And I would say you have to engineer um, an economic and financial plan that you believe is good. And you have to get control of the extremes in your party so that you can pursue a united path. I almost wouldn't care what that policy is, um, just as long as it's done smartly and um, in a bipartisan way. And then you would have to do the same internationally. Okay, like how do you deal with the awkward issues and like that you're that you're dealing with and such as uh, the issues that we're dealing with uh, with China? So you'd have to have that kind of behavior. You, you could say, if we do that, like like I have a principle. If you worry, you don't have to worry. And if you don't worry, you need to worry. Because if you don't worry, if you worry, you'll probably avoid the thing you're worrying about. By, and I hope we can make that clear that we should worry. And, and here's what it looks like. And then maybe you go less to the brink and you try to work it out. If we don't worry about it, I think we're going to be in a problem. So I think from a very practical point of view, you have to ask yourself, what are the probabilities of us doing those things? And there are better things that we can collectively do. And then individuals themselves have to know, you know, how to take, they may not be able, we collectively may not be able to handle these things very well. And how do you protect yourself? How do you, what do you do individually? Mm -hmm. um and speaking of worrying um you brought up uh geopolitics um u.s china this this dynamic what are your worries as it relates to um china yes i'd like to just mechanistically describe things without um you know like uh who's right who's wrong and and all that so let me just des describe it um, there are uh, two types of issues. There's a bunch of issues. Uh, let's put them into uh, two categories. Uh, let's call it sanctions type issues. Uh, China supporting Russia, maybe with military technology, um, um, the uh, chips, what chips do they use? What chips don't, you know, are allowed? 
Um, then there's something called re- reverse CFIUS. Are you allowed to invest in China? You're not allowed to invest in China and so on. Uh, so there's that first category I'll go to in a minute. And then there's the um, second category, which is um, uh, related to Taiwan. Um, I'll just give the background of Taiwan in, in, in brief so people understand it. Um, it's It goes back a long way. Um, China was, um, um, uh, you know, on top of the world in about, in, in about 1840, and um, uh, foreign powers went into China, um, and um, they had wars, really about economics, and then but they had wars to control it, and um, like there was the, in, uh, the Opium War and so on, and as a result of that. Um, one of the foreign powers came in. One of those was Japan. And in 1895, took control of Taiwan. And uh, then, um, um, so fast forward, there's World War II. And, and um, the, the, you know, the powers that won the war said China, China takes back Taiwan. And um, Japanese are no longer in control. It's Chinese. Um, then... Um, they have a war, a civil war uh, for control um, from the left and the right, a classic thing. And those from the right run to Taiwan um, and um, and they both argue they, that they're in control. Those in Taiwan say we're we're the rightful owners of the controllers of Taiwan. And uh, those in the communists in Beijing say we're the rightful controllers. And, but everybody agreed there's one China and let you all work out uh, how that is. So there was um, support for the defense of Taiwan in that intervening period. And then in 19, about 50 years ago, um, Henry Kissinger and then Nixon went there and said, oh, well, the one thing nobody disagrees is there's one China. Um, they might disagree as to who controls it, but there's one China. Taiwan is part of China, and there should be peaceful reunification. And so that was 50 years ago. Uh, and so that brings us up to where we are now, in which um, there's a perception in China of one thing, and there's a perception in the United States of, and uh, particularly in, of another thing. The perception in China is, you know, this is one China and so on. And these are internal affairs and, and, uh, and so on. Um, and there's a red line. The red line is uh, if the United States comes out in favor of independence of Taiwan or Taiwan comes out in favor of independence of Taiwan, uh, there will be a war. Um, and I think most everybody understands that. Most everybody in the right positions understands that. Um um, and we're sort of at the brink of that because also as we have politics, uh, we have a situation where we're going into an election year and there are, um, um, you know, congressmen and, and government officials who um, believe that it's important, uh, that who are going to likely push that instant, probably come out and say something like, we will militarily defend Taiwan and then uh, take actions in their defense by giving them more military. I'm not saying what's right or wrong in this. I'm just describing that. And so as you come to 2024, 
um, you're going to have that. And there's also an election in Taiwan between those who want more independence and, you know, those who don't want as much independence, don't want to push the issue. So you have a precarious situation and um, the both sides are not able to talk that when they interact with each other, uh, it's, um, it, you know, it's constant arguing. Um, I, I won't get into all the particulars, but, you know, like the balloon incident and so on and so forth, there's arguing who's right, who's wrong, whatever. So it's almost not worth talking. And there's pushing the limits on each one of those things. And so it's brinksmanship, um, you know, and who's going to back down how and so on. So it's at the edge of that. I'm not saying we're going to go over, but I'm saying that's just the dynamic that exists. It's an unfortunate dynamic. I'm not saying who's right or wrong. I don't want to get into that. I just want to uh, have people understand that dynamic. And so that's why it's so risky. If it's um okay, so if it's a brinksmanship too, and you point out like how it's risky, um, let me just like ask a few follow ones. Wouldn't that be really risky um to have exposure to China, like whether you are like a Wall Street firm, um, an investment firm, or even a business um that operates over there? Wouldn't that be a major risk to think about if you are on the brink of um a war? Yes, and, and it's having implications, but there's um, it's it's kind of a you know a two sided sword. The question is, well, what is the magnitude of the exposure? Because you know, let's let's say the more probable thing is you don't have a war, and um, and then um, and you have these differences in their technologies and so on. But you're definitely seeing. Um, just like there's a perceived risk in bonds now, U.S. bonds in the world, there's a perceived risk of being in China. Um, and you're seeing the um, neutral countries um, that are doing well, like India and countries um, in, um, well, let's call it the ASEAN countries, which are, you know, Singapore and Indonesia there and different countries, you're seeing them benefit as there's movement um, um, for businesses um, in various ways um, to those countries um, that are not involved in this war. As a generalization, um, you know, if I was to make a big sweeping generalization, I would say um, one wants to invest in countries that have uh, good finances, you know, um, good income statement, balance sheet, or earning more than they spend, and have good because they can withstand uh, disruptions better uh, financially and they'll be more productive. Um, that don't have big internal conflicts and are not in um, the risk of being in the in the war situation. So you see, generally, money going to those types of places. Yeah. Um- you talk about um, in the book, like the changing world order and a rising power. Do you do you see a scenario where that actually plays out? Um, because it seems to me like the the order is they set the governing system for people dealing with each other. Yeah, that's what an order does. You know, in other words, there's a, it's a system for operating with each other, and um, 
what we're seeing now is the world order uh, break down. So, for example, there used to be um, more of an international trading system. Trading existed, and it was like, how do you trade in general? Um, now that's broken down for the most part, and there's what we call bilateral. So one country with another, but it's broken down. If you take the development of technologies now, for example, uh, one would like to be able to have a system for um, creating orderly, an agreed upon system of creating orderly management of technologies and so on. Yeah, otherwise, you have a chaotic system. And um, the same is true for um, everything. You know, the World Trade Organization, uh, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, and so on, uh, were the IMF. Uh, these systems were meant to be world orderly systems, um, and um, now they've become essentially irrelevant. And there's no, um, not, not totally, but largely irrelevant. And they, uh, and so we have this set of circumstances taking place in a uh, disorderly way rather than an orderly way. What about this idea that could the world just bifurcate um, where, where you have more that like country, like if you have like countries that align more with like the U.S. and U.S. values um, versus, you know, thinking like China, Russia? Um First of all, it's happening. Um, and by the way, I would say it's less really around values than it is around practicalities. You know, who, who am I trading with? Uh, what's, who's going to economically, militarily? It's just basically economics and military. Who's going to be advantageous? Um, uh, and, and so, um, you know... It, so it's happening that way. Um, however, we are extremely connected. And when you have the bifurcation, it's extremely costly and extremely risky. So we're having it. Like each country is thinking, if I was to go to war, will I be self-sufficient? Okay. And, and then the develop, developing of resources to try to be self-sufficient doesn't lend itself to efficiency. That's not the primary objective. And then to disconnect is, is very, very difficult. You know, um, we are, you know, um, electronically, digitally uh, connected to the fraction of a second. And, um, you know, in terms of even getting people or stuff from one place to another is shorter than it is has ever been and it's a and it's a very risky environment um you know i i, I know i'm scaring um people but um let, let me give an example there are now nine countries that have nuclear weapons um there is a you know non-proliferation treaties and so on an order to try to prevent other countries from having nuclear weapons, but um, that treaty probably is not going to work. It's going to increase. And because the technology of nuclear weapons is very easy uh, to do it, you could 
how many countries, 75 countries, it's estimated, could have nuclear weapons if it wasn't controlled, and so on. So that situation is creating, um, you know, a um, when you put that mix together with not an orderly system in each of those ways, um, it could be the World Health Organization dealing with pandemics, it could be trading, it could be, you know, not fighting and all of those. You need an, a world order better than ever. And, and so bifurcation um, means, by way of example, less harmonization, less world order. Um, I'm just thinking out loud here because there's so much that I want to like cover with you. I guess for you, like, what it, what is the what is the biggest risk on your mind that's keeping you up? How people are with each other, you know. Like, I think all of this can be well managed, you know, if people are good with each other. We we have, the world has the highest really per capita income or technologies, life expectancies longer than it's ever been. Per capita GDP is the highest and, um, and so on. And to manage these in the best possible way um, is an important thing, whereas to fight about those things so, um, you know, my big, you know, these things exist, problems exist, cycle, but, you know, uh, how the, how we're going to deal with each other is going to be of, will be the primary determinant of what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. I just want to bring up another idea too with you. Um, and it's going back to um, Taiwan, um, because we had, um, you know, House representatives, we had Speaker McCarthy um, meet with Taiwanese President Tsai. And I noticed too that even um, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi praised the meeting, uh, pointing to its bipartisan bipartisan participation and and whatnot. Um, that's a that's a that's a kind of a rare bipartisan move that we've seen, um, at least that I've seen lately that I can think of. Um, well, thoughts? the one uh, thing that uh, Democrats and Republicans are united on is anti-China. <laughs> uh, the problem isn't within the country ourselves. And, that, and in history, it's quite often the case that when you have a country in trouble, it's desirable to have a foreign enemy. Um, but in any case, no, that's right. Um, there is... There is agreement. That's the one thing they agree on. And that is something that, uh, you, you know, if we could, and, and we have to deal with what the risks of war are from that. But I'm also just thinking too, like, um, I, I, I guess there's, there's conflicting narratives too, but wouldn't that be extremely risky too? Like, um, and I'm by no means an expert too, but if there was some sort of, if we reach the point where there's some sort of like kinetic war, it just seems like that would have like huge implications. Like if China moves, that seems like that would have major implications too. Like if you moved into like a new, I, I'm just thinking, cause that would be like, if they are an aggressor there, that could have some serious implications. I, uh, I think that um, you're, this is my take on it. 
I don't think you're going to have the Chinese be an aggressor in Taiwan um, anytime soon if the United States does not cross those lines. So if you're watching it, I would say watch whether um, there is a movement um, to uh, defend Taiwan or move toward independence in Taiwan. I think that would uh, trigger a response. Um, so I, I don't th think it will come from the Chinese, but um, I, you know, I, uh, Anyway, we're very close to, I think, uh, also American politics um, playing a role because as we have in the presidential election, um, you know, um, you want to have uh, the population as a whole is united on anti-China. They're pretty much united on the Taiwan thing. And they want to be very strong, um, like strong leader um and so um there's that dynamic that's uh, going on so um that's the dynamic that's going on yeah well ray i do want to bring up some investing questions with you too while i have you um just throw on throwing out some ideas with you do should u.s citizens do they want i mean i'm just thinking here in the u.s um i mean uh would investors here in the U.S., would they want to keep their assets in treasuries? Just want to hear, your, I'm just going to throw out some asset classes. I just want to hear your views um, on treasuries. Okay, let me, um, before we get into uh, treasuries or whatever, and I don't, um, I really don't want to say what you should buy or sell. Uh, what my goal is, is really to, um, you know, give people the fish, give them the understanding of the cause-effect relationships and, uh, you know, rather than, you know, get, teach them how to fish rather than give them the fish. And um, so I want to convey the, that. I don't want to go down this asset class as good or bad. Um, I, I think I'm offering thoughts about those. And so my thoughts about like, like a bonds or debt is that probably in the long run, um, it will not be a good asset to hold because there's um a lot of uh, there's a lot of debt and it's very difficult to have that debt paid off in with an interest rate and a return that's positive after inflation um to provide that good return makes it very difficult for debtors to pay that money so, you know, a high enough interest rate to satisfy creditors is too high of an interest rate for, to, to not hurt uh, debtors. So um, I'll offer thoughts like that. Um, I think, um, and also I want to say that, you know, like, who knows, maybe everything I'm saying is wrong. I, you know, um, you don't want to bet on any one person or any one thing. You want to have uh, diversification. So I think that when I think about an investor's portfolio, the most important thing is to take, um, I think it a portfolio should be tiered in the form of risk. So um, what I, and that diversification is very important because uh, any bet on any one thing uh, can be wrong. 
And so um, I think um, that first tier of saving should be based on, am I going to have enough money, enough buying power for my needs? And that tier um, should um, should be well saved and almost calcul- have it diversified, um, well diversified in good things. Uh, so things that do well when conditions improve, like, you know, the stock market and so on, and do well when things do badly, you know, that might be gold or, you know, others, you know, think about that. Uh, the way I like to think about it is there are two main drivers and they can go up or down and the markets reflect those things. So if you think about what are they? Inflation and growth. And if, um, and then inflation can rise uh, or fall and growth can rise and fall. And if you can have a balanced portfolio of those, like 25% of your risk in each one of the portfolios that would do well if that happened, you have a balanced portfolio, um, then you're going to have a, uh, an element of diversification so that you're not exposed to too much set, um, one scenario. And once you've got that portfolio established, so you can think how many weeks, months, um, years can I live if, um, you know, on that. And so you have your safety bullet point, bulletproof portfolio that, um, but it can't be in cash. Like people think, um, oh, cash is the least risk investment because um, I hold it and it doesn't go up and down um, and I receive my interest rate. Well, it depends on the interest rate that you have in relation to the inflation rate, because otherwise you can have a bad result because of inflation. So you have to have think about it in real mining power, and you have to have it as a diversified portfolio. So those are the things that I would uh, emphasize uh, to do, and um, you know, to have it also diversified um, internationally. Um, when you say diversify internationally. Um, where? Well, uh, um, again, I would emphasize that the three things I look at most is, is how's the finances? Is the country just like a company or an individual? Um, are they earning more than they're spending? So they have a good income statement. Do they have a good balance sheet? Second, um, do they have internal order or disorder? And third, are they going to have um, a, uh, a conflict? Um, I'm not saying get out of the United States, and I'm not saying get totally out of China. Okay, I think that as a general rule, I want to have my, my risk broken up um, into ten to fifteen uncorrelated good assets. And so that means I don't want to have more than 10%, ideally not more than 7.5% um, in any one of those uh, good assets. And and if I'm judging goodness, I'm judging it by, you know, um, what's their income statement finances like? Do Are they having an internal conflict? And are they in the midst of being in a war? I want to stay away generally for those, but I still want some of those portfolios in that um, so that's good diversification for me. Yeah. 
Ray, what about um, the status of the U.S. dollar? There have been a lot of headlines lately um, talking about de-dollarization that's kind of back in the press. What are your thoughts on the status of the U.S. dollar and the outlook there? Dollar uh, Dollars are uh, debt. In other words, when one holds a dollar, a central bank, um, they hold a debt asset. And um, generally speaking, the world has is holding a lot of U.S. dollar-denominated debt. So the holders of that would say, I'm already overexposed to U.S. dollar-denominated debt. And so there's less of a eagerness to buy the debt. And that eagerness to buy the debt is also re- reduced by, you know, two main things. Uh, one is the the United States uh, share of world trade has gone down and China's has gone up. Um, and so you save really for using spending internationally for that reason. And then also uh, sanctions have increased the perceived risk that those debt assets can be frozen in the way that they've been frozen uh, for Russia. So um, around the world, um, you know, countries, different countries um, increasingly have that risk. So uh, for those reasons, um, you know, there's less desire to hold U.S. dollar denominated uh, um, debt, which means, yes, less U.S. dollar, less U.S. dollars. Um, So the supply demand picture is worsening, particularly as we continue to have to sell them internationally to fund the deficit. Yeah, I know um, you have, we, you and I have talked about Bitcoin. I know like years ago, like 2020, you had different views. Then you came out with a piece um, at the time you said Bitcoin looks like a long duration option on a highly unknown future that I could put an amount of money in that I wouldn't mind losing 80% of. Um what are your views on Bitcoin today? Mm, pretty much the same. I mean, uh, Bitcoin is neither uh, an effective storehold of wealth or a medium of exchange. So it's not a, an effective currency. It has a volatility to it that has no relation to practically anything. Uh, you know, the owners of it, it goes down because let's say if people in the tech business like it and then there's a tech problem then they sell it to raise things and so on and so forth so it has um you know no um it's not an effective it's a a very very poor alternative to gold okay um we can get into you know why that is central banks by the way um own gold and it's their third largest reserve um, and, you know, U.S. dollars, euros, gold, and then yen. And 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 um, and uh, and it's got the history of, of it. And, uh, you know, there it, one can say it's not digital and what I don't know. But I would. Um, but um, so uh, we're not. And, and they can outlaw it. They can regulate it. Um, um, central banks and countries pretty much don't want it um, anyway. Um, so it's uh, not a good viable alternative. Um, you know, if one wants to say, you know, maybe one's 
maybe all that's wrong and doesn't matter and so on. And like I said, you have to assume, like I said then, that it goes down 80%. You can have it go down 80%. And if you want to have a little bit on it, you can have it. It's not a big asset. It gets an amount of attention, which is way out of proportion to its size. You know, it's, I don't know, like 25% of the size of Microsoft. And that's one stock in a world that has a lot of assets and stock markets in it. So um, that's what I think. Yeah. Ray, I also want to talk about um, Bridgewater. You um, transitioned. Um, you're on the board now, but no longer um, um, in a, the co-CIO role. Um, 47 years. What, talk to me about the transition. And, you know, is it is it difficult handing the reins over? And you all are known for such a unique culture. Um you know, seeing some of that culture change, some of the principles that you implemented, would love to just kind of hear from someone who's a founder and what that's like, um, you know, passing over the reins and also seeing changes. It's it's uh, it, it's such a joyous experience, you know. It's like raising a family. Um, you know, uh, imagine you start something uh, and, and grow and you build, you bring in the next generation uh, you work with them, they become partners, um, it, and it becomes, you know, institutionalized and, um, and, you know, um, and, you know, I'm 74 years old. And so it would be very similar to um, somebody who has a family, who's 74 years old and has a family, and you want them to be good without you. Uh, you don't want to control their lives. You want, I want them um, to be able to make their own decisions and so on. No, I don't want to micromanage them. Just like your family, you, you know, you, I feel that, yes, I feel that we made a great culture, you know, an idea meritocracy in which the goals are meaningful work and meaningful relationships through radical truthfulness and radical transparency. And that's basically it. And I wanted that, and it's worked for us. And we've we've had excellent performance for clients and everything. So it's been a beautiful journey. And now it's in their hands. And that's beautiful. So I, uh, it, you know, I'm very, very pleased. I, you know, um, that, again, I emphasize, it's just like your adult kids, you wouldn't want them to follow everything that you do. You want them to make their own decisions um, and, you know, and, and, and just be well. And you don't have, I don't have a monopoly on how to make decisions and be well, don't follow my instructions and, or anything like that. Just, you know, do the best. And I'm now in that new phase of my life. And I like the fact that I can uh, be a mentor, um, you know, and, be a mentor if they want me to be a mentor. Um, I'm uh, still as engaged in the markets and everything as I've ever been. I have a great research team, um, and um, and I love the game. I love what I do. Uh, I started when I was 12. I'll continue it till I die. And um, so you know, like I'm real happy. I love that. Well, Ray, I've really enjoyed having you on the show. If you don't mind, let folks know where they can find you, read more of your work. And if you have any parting thoughts, anything that's top of mind for you that we didn't bring up in this discussion that you'd like to share, please take a moment to do so. 
Um, well, I, th I think you covered everything very well. Um, I try very, I'm 74 years old and at the stage of my life, I want to pass along whatever I have that's a value to others. So that's my goal. I um, have, uh, um, you know, written the books and I've uh, done for each one of them a video, a brief video. Um, you know, there are three videos, uh, how the economic machine works in 30 minutes. Um, I'm happy to say that, you know, well over 100 million people watched it and it helped. Uh, the principles for success, and then also the changing world order. They're all on YouTube. If you're interested in learning about those paths, you can, you know, go there. But in any case, um, I think you did a really good job of allowing us uh, to have a, you know, good conversation or convey these thoughts for people to take or leave as they like. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot to discuss and I appreciate you being so generous with your time and your ideas. Ray Dalio, founder of Bridgewater Associates and author of multiple books, uh, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, Why Nations Succeed and Fail. Go pick up a copy. I highly recommend it. Ray, thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. It's a pleasure.